Hi everyone, welcome to Frankston Presbyterian Church Online. It's great to have you join in again this week. While we're here to worship our God in, with the hearing of His Word, uh, He is the God of truth, His Word is true, and we can depend on it. So let's begin by hearing from Jeremiah uh, chapter 23, which is a call uh, to God's people to turn from falsehood and to embrace His Word. Jeremiah chapter 23. Verse 16 to 24. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says you will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say no harm will come to you. But which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or hear his word? Who has listened and heard his word? See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a whirlwind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purpose of his heart. In days to come you will understand it clearly. I did not send these prophets, yet they have run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and would have turned them from their evil ways and from their evil deeds. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Well, let's commit our time to God in prayer. Let's, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you because you are the God of truth. We can trust your every word because you are truth and in you there is no falsehood. We praise you that you have given us your word in written form, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for uh, correcting, teaching, rebuking and training in righteousness. Your word is like food for our souls and by it, we grow up in our salvation. But Lord, we acknowledge this day that we are dependent upon your spirit uh, so that we might understand and live out your word. Without him, it, it is a dead letter. And so we pray not only for the reading and hearing of your word, but Father, we pray that your spirit would write these eternal truths on our hearts that we might walk in your ways. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we're going to continue our series in 2 Peter today, which is all about pursuing godliness uh, in light of the second coming. So uh, today we're looking at uh, 2 Peter chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, then turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Now, in terms of context, Peter has been just explaining uh, how we can trust God's promises and especially his promise of the second coming, because those who wrote the promises in, in the Bible uh, were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, but now Peter turns to describe the false prophets, the ones who tried to undermine uh, God's word. And so that's what we're going to learn about today. Let's read 2 Peter chapter 2. This is the word of God. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, 
even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented in his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, are born to be caught and destroyed. Blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to have never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is the Word of God. Well, this year has been very challenging in many ways, uh, but certainly at the centre of that challenge is this pandemic that we're still in. Uh, it's crazy to think that something so small, something that you can't even see with the naked eye, can bring a nation and pretty much most of the world to a standstill. But see, that's how destructive a virus is. 
Now today I want to talk about another type of virus which has actually terrorised people for far longer than COVID-19. <clears throat> and it's one that we need to be especially vigilant against. Uh, it's a type of deadly virus that attacks the living body called the church. And I'm talking about the deadly virus of false teaching. <clears throat> false teaching is far more deadly than any physical virus because it has implications for eternity. Um, and so we must never be careless about false teaching. And this is actually where Peter takes us in chapter 2 of his second letter. Chapter 2 is all about false teachers and the destruction that they can cause within the church. Now, as you would have noticed, there's a lot, to, lot of information. Uh, this is a long passage, um, but it's actually very easy to digest because Peter says everything he wants to say about false teachers in the first three verses. He lays out three points there, and the rest of the passage is just illustrating and expanding on those three points. And so we're going to spend most of our time in verses 1 to 3, and then we'll dip into the rest of the passage uh, as we need to. And so in this passage, Peter tells us three things. He tells us the danger of false teachers. He gives us a description of false teachers. And finally, he tells us the destruction of false teachers. So first, the danger of false teachers. Uh, look at verse 1. Verse 1, he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So Peter is writing to believers. And, where, and notice where Peter says you're going to find a false teacher among you. See, the, the, the danger is not outside the church. Those who teach falsehood outside the church are obvious. The real danger is those who arise among you. Uh, that's the danger. Those inside the church. You know, Jesus used a very vivid illustration to warn of this danger when he talked about wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, think about that image. Wolves in sheep's clothing. They can be among the sheep and you may not even know because they look like the sheep. They speak like the sheep. They use all the same churchy language as the sheep. And yet their words are twisted and deceitful. They're false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing. Now Peter goes on. He says there, in verse 1, that they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And that actually is the heart of the danger. See, false teachers arise from within the church, but their teaching originates from outside the church and they secretly bring it in. They sneak it in. See, the picture here is of a deadly substance entering into a place where it doesn't belong and causing all kinds of damage. And that's why a virus is a very good illustration for um, false teaching or for heresy, uh, because a virus doesn't belong in the body. Uh, it's destructive if it gets in. And so we need to be vigilant uh, if we want to avoid being infected. Uh, we need an immune system that can detect the virus of false teaching and to be able to develop the antibody of correction so that we can eliminate it uh, from the body. So it's like a virus. Now the danger is brought out even more in verse 2 where Peter says, and many will follow their sensuality. Many. See that many? Now think about it. Why is it that false teachers get such a following? 
Many of them have a huge following. Why is that? Well, we're going to get into this next week, but uh, even here in verse 2, we can see that there's something in the false teachers that appeals to the worldly bent or the, even the sinful bent of our human hearts. Uh, it, it appeals to our depravity. And so Peter says that many will follow their sensuality. See, it appeals to the senses. And one other example of false teaching or the danger of false teaching here is in verse 3 where Peter says, In their greed they will exploit you with false words. And it's amazing how contemporary this is, although maybe not, because we often think that the prosperity um, heresy that's so prevalent uh, throughout the world, you know, those false teachers peddling lies uh, to get money out of people, we think that's a modern phenomenon But even here, we can see that it's always been around. False teachers are in it for personal gain. And that's why they twist their words uh, for personal gain. And so that's the danger of false teachers. Now, we do need to be a little bit careful in how we apply this, because sometimes people can get a little bit overexcited about identifying false teachers, and they might start branding everyone a false teacher or a heretic, simply because you know they might use a different translation to, to you or maybe they have a, a, a different mode of baptism or perhaps a different view on the role of a deacon in a church, uh, things like that. But you need to realize those things are secondary issues. They're secondary issues where sometimes Christians will actually disagree in good conscience. And so we do need to be careful that we don't brand everyone a heretic simply because they disagree with Uh, everything that I think. Uh, But here's the thing, where there is deviation from things of first importance, uh, things of first importance, what what are they? Well, a good way to think about it is they're the things that are summed up in our creeds and confessions. You know, our creeds and confessions are summaries of what the Bible teaches, the main things that the Bible teaches and which uh, we, we believe as Christians. And so where there is deviation from the things of first importance, you know, like doctrine of Trinity, deity of Christ, uh, the, the authority of scriptures, the law of God, these things of first importance. Where there is deviation from that, then we must label that false teaching and stay away from it because false teaching is like a virus that threatens to kill the body. So that's the danger of false teaching. Uh, second, though, we see here, a description of false teachers. How does Peter describe the false teachers? I mean, what, what are their characteristics? How would you identify one if you had to? And the first characteristic that Peter points out here, it's a little bit surprising because he says that they were once professing believers. Once professing believers. Look at verse 1 again. Peter describes them as even denying the master who bought them. Now, that is very provocative language because Peter is using the language of salvation. Bought is a redemptive term. You know, Christ bought our freedom at the price of his own blood. Uh, Now, Peter says more about them in this sort of way down in verse 20. If you have a look at that, he says, uh, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ... They are entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse than the first. 
Verse 21, he says, For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. So again, this, he's describing them using Christian terms. I mean, a Christian is someone who has the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so that raises the question here, are these false teachers actually saved? I mean, are these people for whom Christ has died? And the answer is clearly no, because the main thing Peter has to say about these false teachers in this passage is that they are on their way to hell. That's what he means at the end of verse 1 when he talks about their destruction. Or verse 3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. And so clearly these false teachers are not saved. Well, why does Peter describe them as denying the master who bought them then? Why does he say it like that? I mean, is he saying that they were once saved, but now they've lost their salvation? Is that what he's saying? Well, no, because the Bible teaches the perseverance of the saints. You know, like Jesus said, uh, I will lose none that the Father has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Uh, The Bible describes salvation like an unbroken chain from eternity past. God predestined uh, and those he predestined, he called those he called, he justified those he justified, he also glorified. Salvation is described like an unbroken chain. You can't be predestined, called and justified and then all of a sudden lose it. It's one unbroken chain. And so if that's the case, then, then what Peter's saying here, he can't be saying that these false teachers were once saved, but now have lost their salvation. So the way to understand it is that he must be describing them from the perspective of observation. You know, how it appeared to those looking on. So think about it. These false teachers, they were part of the church. Uh, they had made some kind of a profession of faith. They claimed to be followers of Jesus. They may have even been sincere about that claim. But what we see is that what they were claiming was not actually a true reflection of what was actually going on in their lives. In fact, they they weren't saved at all. They weren't saved in the first place. And the telltale sign that Peter points to to prove that is that it was obvious in the way they were living. You know, like Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. And we've already noted that Peter mentions their sensuality in verse 2, which is a word that has sexual connotations. And so they were living contrary to God's law regarding sexual conduct. And he does expand on that throughout the passage. And so let's just have a look at a couple of verses here. So down in verse 10, he says, uh, he talks about those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Uh, Verse 13, he says, uh, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. And that's a way of saying that they were were unashamed about their their, their, um, sin, their conduct. They were outwardly defying God's commands and even proud of it. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery. And so these people, despite claims to be followers of Jesus, were living a perverse lifestyle and they had no shame about that. But what makes them false teachers is that they were promoting that as a legitimate lifestyle for Christians. They had some sort of position of influence in the church And we're using that to promote this ungodliness. And so the heresy that they were propagating, if we want to give it a label, which is usually helpful, 
The heresy that they were propagating was the heresy called antinomianism. Antinomianism. So anti means against, nomos, law. They were against God's law. They were rejecting God's law, particularly his laws regarding sexual conduct. Now in the next chapter, we'll see that they were also denying the second coming of Jesus and judgment day. Uh, but that seems to be motivated by their ungodliness. You know, they didn't want to accept that God judges sin uh, on, on, the, on judgment day. They rejected that. And that's actually often the way heresy comes about. Heresy doesn't come about by people sitting around going, hey, what's, what's the next heresy we can invent? No, it comes about by people, teachers, wanting to accommodate something that God says is sinful or wanting to accommodate worldly thinking into Christian doctrine. Uh, and so, you know, in this case, these false teachers were calling evil good. They were like the false prophets in Jeremiah's day, promising peace where there actually is no peace. But their teaching, it's destructive. This teaching of antinomianism is so destructive because it enslaves those who embrace it. So you have a look at verse 18. In verse 18, Peter writes, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom. You know, you can be free, live any way you want. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Now, it's pretty easy to see how this passage applies today. I mean, we live in a Western society where, in, in which is deeply embedded this mentality that only I can define what is right for myself, and especially regarding sexuality. And so our society is one in which sexual sin is normalized. You know, whether that's uh, sex outside of marriage or the sin of homosexuality, you know, it's celebrated in our culture and it's pushed so much in the media that you almost feel like the bad guy for being opposed to it. But in many ways, that shouldn't surprise us. I mean, it shouldn't surprise us that there are things in, in this culture, uh, like things where people are celebrating what God calls evil. That shouldn't surprise us because this world is in rebellion against God. But sadly, sadly, what we have seen over the last decade or two is that teachers under the banner of Christianity have brought this cultural narrative into the church and are saying that it is okay to be a Christian and to continue to live in ways that are contrary to God's word, particularly regarding sexuality. And this is a big issue in our day. This, this is one where we need some very clear biblical thinking. Um, you know, it's not that God is only against this sin. He's against all sin. But this is one where we need to be particularly careful that we don't get deceived. So that's one application. Another application of this passage is that even though you might not be a false teacher, and even though you might not know of any false teachers, or feel like you're in, in danger of falling into their trap, but this passage, it certainly gets us to examine our own lives and to see, hang on a minute, have, have I embraced this ancient heresy of antinomianism? You know, is there, is there something in my life that, that I'm hanging on to that God says is sin? 
You know, am, am I thinking that it's okay to perhaps hang on to this one particular sin? Am I thinking it's okay to live the way I decide? You know, I define right for myself. Perhaps you've fallen into that trap. Maybe you think it doesn't matter how I live. But what we see in this passage is it does matter. It does matter how you live. Do you know why? Because the gospel is at stake. The gospel is that Jesus came into the world to save us from our sin. Not only the penalty of sin, but even the practice of sin and enslavement to sin. He came to set us free from this enslavement. And so if, you, if you've been reconciled to God through the cross of Christ, then you can't go on denying the one who bought you. You can't go on living in defiance of the one who shed his blood to set you free. And so the question for you today is, are you denying the master who bought you by the way you're living? There is a warning in this passage. Uh, the warning is that if you do not repent of sin, then what Peter says in verse 21 will also be true of you. In verse 21, he says, For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. See, 2 Peter and the rest of the Bible consistently teach that we are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. See, the Christian life is one of pursuing godliness. And any teaching that undermines that or any teaching that detracts from that is clearly not from God. It is false teaching. Okay, so we've seen the danger of false teachers. They can come up inside the church. We've seen a description of false teaching, in this case, antinomianism. But the third thing we learn in this passage is the destruction of false teachers. God will destroy false teachers. And we see that right through this passage, even beginning in verse 1, where Peter says that by promoting their false teaching, these teachers are bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now, obviously, that's swift uh, from God's time frame, which we're going to have a look at next week. Uh, but verse 3 says their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Now, in verses 4 to 10, Peter then brings out three examples from the past of people who were living in defiance of God's law, thinking they could get away with it, and when God brought sudden judgment upon them. Uh, three, three examples of God intervening into history in judgment. So you've got the, the angels in verse 4, the people in Noah's day in verse 5, uh, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 6. So each of them, they were going about their ungodly ways and suddenly judgment fell. Suddenly God intervened. These are historical events where God stepped into history to bring judgment on ungodliness. And in verse 6, Peter says that each of these is an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. That means that just as God intervened in the past, so he will again intervene in the future to bring judgment on the ungodly. See, he's not idle. He's not asleep. He will judge. You cannot defy God forever. We do need to let this sink in. 
I know this is not an easy topic to listen to. In fact, uh, lots of people don't like 2 Peter chapter 2 or even 2 Peter the letter because of this. It's, you know, they say that it sounds like Peter is just on a rant. You know, the language of the users, like he says they're bold and willful, irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blots and blemishes, accursed children, waterless springs, mists driven by the storm, slaves of corruption, dogs returning to its vomit. I mean, some people think, what got into Peter? Was he just having a bad day or something? But Peter is actually painting a really awful picture, a vile picture of false teachers and the destruction that's coming on them in order to help us to see how serious this is. You know, God is going to judge the ungodly and the judgment upon those who promote ungodliness in the church will be far more severe. And so we cannot be sympathetic towards false teachers or towards their teaching or towards the ungodliness that accompanies their false teaching. Peter is not being over the top at all. He's being a good pastor. This is a truth that we need to hear. It's something we need to let sink in. We need to, need to make sure we've listened carefully. You know, God tells us over and over again that he will judge ungodliness, that we cannot remain in sin or we will be condemned. We will be judged. <clears throat> he tells us this over and over again so that we will escape the judgment, that we will turn from our sin. And see, that's where I want to end this, this message today. See, what if you're listening and you realize, yikes, I actually have given in. I have fallen into this trap of thinking that I can live any way I like. You know, perhaps you're hanging on to a particular sin, thinking that it's in secret, no one will know it, all will be well. What do you do now that you realize that you're not okay, that you're in danger? What do you do? You cast yourself on the mercy of God. You see, it's not all doom and gloom in this passage. Because although God will judge the ungodly, he is also a God of mercy who forgives those who do what? Who repent. Those who turn from their sin and embrace his rescue. And you can even see that in this passage. You know, those three examples from the past where God intervened in judgment, it wasn't only judgment, there was also a rescue. So Noah and his family rescued in that ark. Or Lot and his daughters rescued as the angels dragged them out of Sodom and Gomorrah when the fire from the sky fell. Why did God rescue Noah and his family? And why did God rescue Lot and his daughters? The reason, Peter tells us, is because they were righteous. And by that, he's not saying that they were sinless. I mean, that's pretty obvious when you read the account of their lives. So what it means... By calling them righteous, he's saying that these are people who repented of their sin and who put their trust in God's rescue. And today that rescue is found in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and embrace the Saviour. See, our confidence on Judgment Day is because we have a Master who bought us. He bought us at great cost to himself. He was punished for our sin on the cross so that we can go free. See, he paid the price for our forgiveness. He paid the price to set us free, free from that enslavement to sin. And so if you know that Jesus has done that for you, if you know the cost that that was for him, 
If you know that, then you don't go on the rest of your life denying him by the way you live. You don't be like that pig that, you know, it gets washed, it's squeaky clean, and then it goes straight back to the mud. Don't be like a dog that vomits up its food and looks at it again and thinks, you know what, why not? And gets, starts eating the vomit. That's disgusting. That's what it's like for a believer to go back to sin, to being enslaved in sin. Surely this warning should help us to turn, live a life of repentance and faith. That's what the Christian life is, one of constant repentance and faith, turning from sin, following the Saviour. See, the gospel is that we have been set free. So live out that freedom. Live out this life of repentance and faith. Live in the freedom that Christ saved you for, the freedom to pursue godliness. Amen. Well, let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your mercy toward us that you have not left us in our sin and unbelief, that even though we were lost and in darkness and had no knowledge of the truth, that you by your grace shone the light of the gospel into our hearts so that we can know the truth and, know, and be set free. We thank you that, uh, that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life and that because of his death on the cross, there is life for all who turn from their sin and put their trust in him. And Father, even as we wait for the full redemption of our bodies and that final freedom, even from the presence of sin itself, Lord, we acknowledge that we still do struggle with the old nature. We still feel the, that pull of, of the sin nature and that false teaching that says that it doesn't matter how you live. We, we know that there's been times where that has found a foothold in our hearts and we have gone and done things that... We, we have been set free from. We have gone back. And so, Father, we ask that you would forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We thank you for that wonderful promise that we can never tire of hearing, that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just and will forgive us and will purify us from all unrighteousness. Thank you that the blood of Jesus washes us clean as white as snow. Lord, we pray that you would protect us and give us discerning minds, help us to be able to discern truth from error, and help us, Father, to speak the truth in love to those around us. We pray that uh, you would protect us as a church, that we would hold fast to your word, and Lord, that it wouldn't just be something that we know in our heads, but we pray that we would live it out, that we would be a people who pursue godliness because we want our lives to be for your glory. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to end with uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. This is a a prayer, and it goes uh, like this. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best, and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. See you next week.